Psalm 14 this morning. It's a Psalm of David. Now the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. And there is none who does good. And the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand and who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There's none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who eats up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. And then, O that that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord does bring back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Now, as we get into the Psalms, David writes roughly half of them, 72 or something like that. But the first 40 are all King David's. Of course, this is personal to David, is what he's going through at the time. A lot of them written in times of distress, fear, anxiety. And so it does have that personal aspect from David's own personal experience. But then, as Jesus said, the volume of the book is really about him. The Psalms are also messianic. In other words, they're about Jesus Christ. If you just flip back one or two pages to Psalm 8, where we were at last week, we mentioned that um, David is referring to himself when he says, when I consider the heavens and the works of your finger, verse 3 of chapter 8, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? Well, he's referring to himself there. But then he says, and the son of man that you visit him, you made him a little lower than the angels. And it goes on to declare that this son of man will have an everlasting kingdom. So really, verse 8, David is writing it. But it is clearly messianic as we went into the New Testament. And these very scriptures that are quoted from Psalm 8 clearly refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So they are messianic also. And number three, they're prophetic not necessarily about Jesus, but of Israel in particular. Psalm 14 is about the depravity of man leading up to Jesus establishing his kingdom. Now, you guys all know I'm a fan of J. Vernon McGee, and he may be right or he may be wrong in his assessment from verses Psalm 9 to Psalm 15. But he sees this as a chronological building up to the kingdom age, But right before the kingdom comes in, we have this um, depravity of man in the last days, atheist, filthy, rebellious. And I'm quoting him this morning as he begins Psalm 14. He says, this psalm is linked to the other psalms, especially Psalm 12. In that psalm, you will recall that we saw the corruption of the last days. The godly man has ceased, it seems, And the godless were in control, corruption, wickedness, lawlessness. Let me just stop here, because I heard on the news for the first time, a reporter say, our country has become lawless. And it just stopped me in my tracks. And I said, that's exactly what the Bible says. Our country has become lawless. You may think that it is a picture of this day, 
But if I may use the common expression that's used on the streets, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait until the great tribulation comes. By the way, I hope you don't see it because, because God's own, those who are of the body of believers, are not going through the great tribulation. He has already said that he would keep them from that hour of temptation which is going to come upon the whole world to try them that dwell on the earth. Revelation 3 verse 10. The church, by which I mean true believers, will leave before that time. This psalm certainly set before us the corruption and the wickedness of the last days and the end of the age. So let's dive right in this morning. Verse 1 of chapter 14 tells us that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Boy, can we get sidetracked here. I mean, from the time I was a kid, and um, what I see happening today in religious institutions, where um, we being founded on our Judeo-Christian principles have gotten so far away from that that if we are living in the last days, what uh, is hinted at here is atheism that there's fools who won't even acknowledge the existence that there is a creator. Now, what God is telling us, and basically in verse 1, if you say you're an atheist, he's calling you a fool. (laughs) If you have a problem with me, don't come back with me. You have a problem with what we just read. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. And he's calling an atheist or agnostic straight out, straight up, just a plain fool. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. There we are, one and three this morning on the board. Romans 1. I've often said I don't believe that the atheist who calls himself atheist believes it for a second. And what I have to back that up is the scriptures. So I can either believe them and what they say, that they're an atheist, or I can believe the word of God who says they really aren't, but they're just suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. And that's what verse 18 tells us. There is no such thing as, a, as, as an atheist, according to God's word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The truth is Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Could use an amen there. All right, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He clearly declares that. So that truth is being suppressed, but it ties into because they love unrighteousness. And then verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has showed it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal Godhead. We read the psalm this morning, David's commenting on all the things that God has made, how he's provided through um, uh, the resources of this planet and the animals for us to enjoy. Uh, They're clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, his eternal Godhead, so that, notice, number two, they are without excuse. Number one, atheists suppress the truth. Number two, they're going to be held accountable. There's, there are going to be no excuses. Well, I didn't believe that you existed. Well, you know I existed. You stand without excuse. 
And thirdly, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. They became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts, I like that, fool is said in his hearts, their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice, professing themselves wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man of birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Three things about the fool who says there is no God. Number one, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They're going to be held accountable. They will be held, they'll have no excuses on judgment day. And then of their own admission, Proverbs 12 verse 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Well, you might believe this, but this is what I believe. These are my eyes. And that's what I choose to believe. One of the men in um, um, men's prayer yesterday was commenting, uh, he read about a scientist, maybe you heard this, a scientist's name is uh, Mark Armitage. Uh, he's a scientist, and he discovered a T-Rex. It was dated to be uh, 68 million years old. And then they found out of, when they got to the uh, soft, uh, this, uh, the part of the bone, they found soft tissue. It's very difficult to have soft tissue with something being 65 or 68 million years old. And he says, we have a problem here. I can no longer hold to this if there's soft tissue. And so as a result, he says, I have to change my position on teaching this. And they abruptly fired him from the university that he was teaching. When common sense proves they're without excuse, you know. And as a result, they've become fools. Dave Hunt, in his book, Seeking and Finding God, says, it is undeniable that there is neither truth, meaning, nor purpose without an intelligent creator who, for his own reasons, made the universe and each of us in his image. Yet the world of academia largely rejects the inescapable fact Professors and students claim to be on a quest for truth while denying that it it exists or that anyone could identify it if it did. Such is a nihilistic atmosphere in major universities around the world. It is considered to be too dogmatic for anyone to claim that truth can be known. And what is the point of research and study? If all that we can achieve is a listing of different opinions, none of which can be declared to be either right nor wrong. In other words, no absolutes. What's right in your own eyes? Proverbs 12.5. The fool does what's right in his own eyes. Summing this all up, they want to be broad-minded, tolerant, and um, intolerant of any opinion that disagree with it. Well, we want to be open-minded. That is, unless you disagree with me. Then I'm not tolerant anymore. Professors and students claim to be on a quest for truth while denying that it even exists. Make up your mind. You're looking for truth, but you don't even say that it exists. As we see, you know, the Bible clearly tells us about you can be extremely sophisticated and educated, have a brilliant mind, have an IQ off the charts. It's possible to have a high IQ, have a lot of knowledge, and yet not have any wisdom whatsoever or discernment. The Bible tells us that knowledge puffs up. 
It's danger. It causes us to avoid truth, maybe if it doesn't line up with what we see it. On the other hand, what is wisdom? Well, the the Bible tells us in Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning, just the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Let's go back to um, Psalm 14. We've made it through one verse. Verse 2. And this is what captivated my attention in wanting to teach on Psalm 14 this week. I thought about it. I got caught up in verse 2. He says, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men. There's another verse that says, The eyes of the Lord, they do go to and fro over the whole earth looking, seeing. So he looks down from heaven and he wants to see, does anybody understand? And that's where I, I, there's a comma there. And I, I would put a say la. God looks down and he says, anybody getting it down there? Do you understand what this is all about? And then he finishes the thought by saying, who seek God? And I do want to pause on this thought. Usually, we don't seek God of our own volition. The Bible tells us that he is the pursuer. He sought you out. You didn't seek him out. You might think you're on this great uh, search in life, but the fact of the matter is he is the one who searched you out. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? We usually seek him out if we're going through tough times. We think we have the answers. If you turn back, we just finished the book of Job. It's only a couple of pages away. Go back to Job 42. I mean, most of the book of Job is his knowledge of God, justifying himself before his three friends, full of knowledge. Finally, his three friends got up, gave up on trying to um, debate Job with his knowledge. They cashed it in. But then the Lord shows up in chapter 42. And then Job answered the Lord and said, in verse 1, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, that was God's question to Job, who who do you think you are, Job? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And then Job says, listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you and you shall answer me. Well, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I see you, and therefore I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Job thought he had knowledge. He was intellectually superior to his three buddies. But when he stood in the presence of his creator, All he could do is put his hand over his mouth and abhor the depravity of his nature. And, um, you know, without exception, we could really do different studies of how this has happened to different people. But I think of Isaiah. Uh, In Isaiah 6, when Uzziah died, Isaiah too saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. He saw the angels around the throne at the same time, saying, holy, holy, holy. The posts around the throne shook. And so Isaiah said, woe is me, I am, done. I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. 
I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's seen him. God looks down from heaven, we read in verse 2, and he says, is there anybody down there that's getting this? Why you're here? What's your purpose? It is to seek God. And that's, as we get into this question here, let me put it in the form of a question. And that is, why are you here? Why are you born? Everybody here has a birth date, and we always commemorate it. Um, Paul was supposed to be with us today. Uh, he called me and had to change. Well, his birthday's today. We have, usually have a little birthday party for him. He's going to be 63 now. But um, he called me. For you old Jesus people, I'll tell you a Jesus people's story here. Some of you old-timers remember Keith Green and his tragic death in the early 80s at, in Texas. Well, Melody, his wife, um, kept Keith's piano all these years, and Melody and Paul are really good friends. And He was supposed to be here this morning, but he says, Dwight, he called me, he says, Melody just called me, and she just sold her house, and she's got to move out right now, and um, you have to take care of Keith's piano. So the reason he's not here this morning, today is his birthday. We all remember our birthdays. But um, he'll be with us next week for the baptism. Oh, and, and as long as I'm sidetracked. Um, <laughs> we have a handful of people getting baptized. But I remember um, we were up at the Red Mill. Judy and I were a couple of weeks ago up in Wapaka. On our way over to your place, as a matter of fact. And there was, a, there was a, a calendar on the wall. It said 1972. I said, this is great. I can find a mystery that I've had for a long time. I was baptized in water and in the Holy Spirit on April 9th. I wasn't sure, was it the 9th or the 11th? It had to be a Sunday. And sure enough, in April of 1972, the 9th was a Sunday. So I can categorically say I was baptized in water and the Holy Spirit on April 9th 1972. Boy, I hope I can find my way back because I got sidetracked big time. Well, is there any who understands? What's your purpose? Does any, God looks down and he says, you guys know what you're really here for? Well, it's my job. It's my profession. Men usually take great pride in their profession. Well, what, who are you? What do you do? And what, we use, what do we say, man? Well, I'm this, this, or that, right? But what we should say no, I'm a, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he purchased me. My life isn't my own. So who am I? Well, I'm a follower of his. I'm, I'm a Christian. That's who I am. And then after that, fill in the blank. What do you do for a living? What pays your bills? But the Bible says we are to seek first, right? His kingdom and him. Is there anybody who understands the Lord says, understand what? Well, what's my purpose and what's my reason for existing well, so that you can be reunited with your creator that you've been separated from, the Bible teaches, because of Adam's sin. And you are separated from God unless you come to Jesus Christ and allow him to bridge the gap. And there's only one person who can do it. And we are very, very narrow-minded. Uh, we absolutely believe in absolutes that there's only one way and one name under heaven whereby you must be saved. And once you've come to that place and that bridge has been gapped between you and your, your creator, then you were meant to have fellowship with him. What's your purpose? 
Paul, writing to the Philippians, says, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. But with that goes the fellowship of his suffering. Paul goes on to say, look, I'm not perfect. Verse 12, I have, I have not already attained, or am I already perfect? And we need to understand that as believers, you're never going to, like the manifested Son of God doctrine, that tells you you'll be perfect eventually. No, you won't. Paul says, you're never going to get there. I, I've, I've not attained to perfection, neither will I. But he says, I'm going to press on, that I may lay hold for that which Jesus Christ laid hold of me. There was a purpose that the Lord saved Paul. And he explained his purpose. And then he says, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let as many of us as are mature, I like that, have this mind. And if anybody thinks otherwise, well, God will reveal it to you. That's a pretty narrow statement, Paul. If you think different than this truth right here, then, well, God will show you later that what he said was true. Let's turn to John 17 this morning. We often quote the Lord's Prayer, and we say it's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Well, they got that because the disciples were watching Jesus pray. And he said, Lord, would you show us how to do that? And so what we call the Lord's Prayer is really not. It's really the disciples' prayer. If you want the Lord's Prayer, what he's praying for, you have to go to John 17. It's divided into three different sections. First of all, Jesus is praying for himself in verses 1 through 5. 6 through 18, 19, he's praying for those disciples that left everything to follow him. But then in verse 20, he's praying for you. And uh, this is what he prays for. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will, future tense, believe in me through their witnessing, their word, what, pray what? That they may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us, and that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and I have loved them as you have loved them. Father, I desire also that whom you gave me may be where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. God looks down from heaven. Anybody down there understand who seeks me and comes to this place where they're one with the Lord? We were in Wednesday night, we are in the book of Jude, got sidetracked talking about false prophets. As he closes it, he says, make sure you keep yourself, people, in the love of God abiding in him, and that's really Jesus' prayer for us. Well, it doesn't just happen. It's got to be sought after 
even though the invitation is open. In Matthew 7, um, <clears throat> Jesus says, you have not because you ask not. Because ask, and then it'll be given to you. We wonder sometimes, or I do, what could have been, because maybe I haven't acknowledged the Lord or asked him about something. But he challenges us. Go ahead and ask. Ask it. And seek it, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. These are all things on our part, to ask the Lord, to seek him, and to continually knock, and it eventually will be open. For everyone who asks, he'll, you'll, you'll receive. Yes, no, or wait. I can handle love, yes. I can handle a no. I hate wait. Anybody with me on hating wait? <laughs> Don't pray for patience. Jeremiah says, and you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. It's something that you're really passionate about. Something that you give yourself to. God looks down from heaven and he says, is there any who understand who seeks after him? Let's go back to Psalm 14 and look at the bulk of this. Again, McGee's contention as this is the depravity of man that will get worse and worse right before the kingdom comes. And my goodness, as I look out at the world today, just the last month, the unbelievable atrocities, men who have absolutely no soul whatsoever and no conscience whatsoever. I won't get graphic because you know what I'm talking about. But the Bible says men would wax worse and worse in the last days. So this whole lunacy that we're going to evangelize the world and only when it's evangelized will Jesus return. That's not logical. It defies common sense as we see the perilous times in which we're, we're living in. So in verses 3 to 6, the bulk of Psalm 14, what we have in view here is actually going to be quoted in the New Testament. Now again, as we make our way through the Bible, and as we study the Psalms, one of my goals is to make that connection between the old and the new. And we find it here in verse 3. It says, They have all turned aside. They have altogether become corrupt. And there is no one who does good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread. And they do not call on the Lord. There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is in his refuge. Romans 3 quotes Psalm 14. And I want to take you there this morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles, actually to make this connection, where Paul pulls this verse out of Psalm 14 in the book of Romans, chapter 3. And the context here in Romans as a Jew it was absolutely essential that you keep the law, that you be circumcised, that you go to the feast, a whole gamut of things that you had to do in order to obtain salvation. And Paul boasted in this. He says, Well, you want to talk about being a Jew? I'll talk about being a Jew, born in the tribe of Benjamin. As far as keeping the law, blameless. Wow, 
I don't know who could say that. He did. Studied under Gamaliel, the best teacher of his time. And yet he is the one who is writing to the Romans, and he says you can't have it both ways. You either got to be perfect in the law, or your righteousness has to be based upon something completely different. And so what he does in verse, so pick it up in verse 9, he's trying to show that all men are depraved, and all men are under God's judgment. So he's talking in verses 1 through 8 about um, um, being a Jew, but not, as a Jew, not being able to attain the righteousness of God, which he now had. So in verse 9, he says, what then? Are we better than they, and the Jews over Gentiles? And he says, no, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Gentiles that they are under sin, as it is written. And now he pulls this out of Psalm 14. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is not one who understands. There are none who seek after God. They have all gone out of their way. They have altogether become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. Paul pulled that out of Psalm 14. And he pulled it into his explanation by the deeds of the law, you can't be made righteous. Well, if you can't be made righteous like that, how can anybody be righteous? If you go down to verse 20. Oh, let's pick it up in 19. He says, For we know that whatever the law says, it says it to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law came the knowledge of sin. The way you found out that we are sinners as if the law would have said, thou shalt not covet, and all of a sudden you're coveting something. You have to have a standard to know what you've sinned against. Well, the law is a standard. Thou shalt not, and we have. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all, And on all who believe, there's no difference. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And now we're being justified. I asked the worship team to do that song this morning. I love it. Justified. Just as though I've never sinned at all. You know, that's the truth. Sanctification is that process that's being worked. Because Paul said, look, I haven't attained. I'm not perfect. But if you're in Christ... 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who know no sin, that was a part of the song. He who know no sin became sin for us so that we might be what? Justified and have the righteousness which is of Christ. And that's what this is saying, being freely justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So you can boldly, and that's part of the song too, we can boldly come before God. Yeah, I know who I am. I know my shortcomings. I know my faults. And with all that, I wake up every morning and I go, the mercies of the Lord are new every single morning. I stand on that one. What a great scripture to wake up to, huh? 
right, even before you've had your coffee, you know. Clean slate, new day, justified in the eyes of the Lord. Well, let's turn to Luke 18, and if you're not quite with me or not quite there yet with the Lord, you're wondering, how do I come about having this freedom that you're talking about, Dwight? In Luke chapter 18, we have just exactly that. We have a self-righteous Jew and one who knows too well as a tax collector and it's Jesus is teaching how we are to seek God. If Psalm eight fourteen says anybody understands that it's all about seeking God, well, how do we do that? Jesus told this parable in Luke eighteen. So he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Again, that's what the fool does. He's wise in his own eyes. Who trusts in themselves that they were righteous? And then they have this haughty attitude and actually despise other people. He says there were two men in verse 10 that went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other one was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners or unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I tithe of all my possessions. Well, that's the pompous one that the Lord will hide his heart from. And then in verse 13, the tax collector is standing off in a corner. He wouldn't even so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his chest, painfully aware of his sin, and he said, God, just be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew who he was. And then Jesus says this, I tell you, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself is going to be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Psalm 34 says that the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and he saves such that have a contrite spirit. Psalm 51 says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, And a broken and a contrite heart, God will not despise. He looked at that tax collector who didn't even dare look up. And he said, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm such a rotten guy. And he says, that's the guy that went home forgiven, not the self-righteous Pharisee. One more section in our study this morning. Let's go back to Psalm 14. And it's the last verse. And it really, the first six verses here really talk about the depravity of man. But it's what ties into what's coming. And that would be completely separate here in verse 7. Verse 7 says, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, then let Jacob rejoice and let Israel rejoice. Be glad. This verse looks forward, anticipating, in anticipation to the glorious day when out of Zion will come salvation for Israel. In that day, Jacob shall rejoice, Israel will be glad. You cannot misunderstand this verse. Anyone who says that God does not have a future purpose for Israel 
is admitting that he doesn't know very much about the Psalms. He may try to avoid what is so clearly stated in other passages of the word, but how can he deny that the heart cry and the joy of the psalmist is the future when God will establish a kingdom on earth with Israel at the center? The center of the kingdom is going to be Jerusalem. Jesus, in talking about dealing with the Jewish people. Jesus was a Jew. All the early Christians, they were all Jews, every single one of them. John 1.11 says he came unto his own, his own people, but his own received him not. Finally, realizing they weren't going to listen now, it was all part of God's plan. In Matthew 23.39, Jesus says to the nation of Israel, and to the Jewish people in particular, he says, I say to you, You will see me no more until you say, Israel, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That has not happened. Israel is gathered in unbelief. I did talk to the one of the reasons I played this video clip this morning by Pat Condell, for those of you who are interested. I wasn't going to play it. I thought this guy's kind of edgy. He swore a couple times in it. We bleeped that out. And, um, but, I called my friend in Israel, David Katz, this week to set up some hotel rooms because we're going to be out there a day early. And I I finally got a hold of David on the phone. He was at home. I've known David for 25 years. And I said, David, how you doing? I'm all chipper and happy about going to Israel. He's not. He says, oh, Dwight, I haven't slept. My wife and I haven't slept four hours a night for the last month. I have two sons in the Gaza Strip. They're coming home today. And all of a sudden, what I'm watching on TV has a completely different perspective. Now it's personal. He's my buddy. And he can't sleep at night because he's got kids that are up all night in Gaza. And uh, he says, oh, we're so tired and we're so weary with all this. And I said, Dave, we're praying for you. And we did pray for him yesterday in men's prayer. He's a Jew. He's been in Israel for 25 years, born again, knows the Lord, and he's a, and he's a good friend. But he's, he's really the exception to the rule in, in Israel today. Um, in closing this morning, we're going to go to when Israel does call upon the name of the Lord. And it's in the book of Hosea. I'm going to give you a little time to find it. It's in the Minor Prophets. If you're having a really hard time finding it, it's on page 889. Then you should find it real quick, real easy. Jesus said to Israel, verse 7 of Psalm 14, it's all about the kingdom. Jacob's going to rejoice in Zion. But Jesus says, you're not going to see me anymore. He's going to go back to heaven. He's going to establish The saving of the Gentiles, inconceivable, unbelievable, a Gentile can be saved. A Jew would never think such a thing. But for the past 2,000 years, we call the church age, where God is uniquely giving the gospel to the Gentiles and to Jews, both. The Jews have not responded, but God is working towards that. In Hosea chapter 5, Picking it up in verse 14, 
I'll explain the end of it before I get into chapter six. Verse 14 says, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them away and then go away. I will take them away and no one shall rescue. Then verse 15, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their offense. Let's just stop. Jesus says, I'm going home. And I'm going to stay there until you acknowledge your offense. And please notice that it's not offenses, it's singular. One offense. It's not all their idols that they worshiped or their pagan attributes or any of those things. He's talking about one single offense that Israel committed. And he's not coming back until they acknowledge it. In their affliction, this is the great tribulation, the remnant. They will diligently, what? Seek me. Is there anybody in heaven, Lord says, he looks down that understand and seeks me? Jesus said, Israel, you're not gonna see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The sin that Israel committed was a rejecting of their own Messiah. That's the single offense. Then they seek him, and now chapter six, what do they say? Come. Let's return to the Lord. He has torn. He will heal us. He has stricken. He'll bind us up. How long? Oh, after two days, he will revive us. This is where 2 Peter comes in, where that one verse says, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day to the Lord. And now they say, how long? Well, after two days, he will revive us. It's been 2,002 days since Jesus said, you won't see me again until you say. And but then it says, on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. The last verse of Psalm 14 is a verse that talks about Israel acknowledging their transgression, the Lord returning and coming to rescue them. And actually, the third day is the beginning of millennium, which is what verse 7 is all about. God looks down from heaven. He says, anybody down here understand what you're supposed to be doing with your life? Well, I added this note this morning before I came. I thought about it. I thought about fools being right in their own eyes. They say there's no God. And then I thought about wise men. And as I said, wise men, yeah, the wise men, you know, were there three of them, were there five of them? We don't know. Why were they wise? I believe they spent, I believe, first of all, they were students of Daniel. They were called the Magi, remember? And the Bible tells us that Daniel was the chief Magi. And so I believe the Magi were students of Daniel. And the book of Daniel tells you to the day the first coming of Christ, and to the day the second coming of Christ. First coming, Daniel 9. Second coming, Daniel 12. Can you imagine sitting under Daniel? Wow. And so they had some insights, these wise men. And in closing, I, I thought about these wise men because we, around Christmas time, like to say, wise men still seek him. And these three guys, if there were three, I believe they gave their life Watching, waiting, looking for certain signs. Oh, it, it, 
it possessed them in the positive sense of the word. I mean, this is what they gave their life to, that someday he is going to come. Daniel told us all about it. Yeah, there were probably wonders and mysteries in, in, the, in the skies that they were aware of. Star led them to Bethlehem. Then they got it out of one of Herod's skies that the place is called Bethlehem where the Messiah would be born. They did whatever it took to get there. They gave up their life, whatever their day plan was. No, they, they, they dropped it all. And they were going to seek him, and they were going to find him. And they finally did. And when they found him, they worshipped him as the king of Israel. And so as we go out this morning and we consider the Psalms, really, again, it's about uh, the volume of the book is all about the Lord. As far as being wise, gang, if you can't see the signs today that are out there, the Bible says when these things begin to happen, holy smokes, they've more than begun. (laughs) They should have us looking up (laughs) all the time. As these things begin to happen, look up because redemption is drawing near. Amen? Let's stand this morning as we pray for our Bible study. Lord, thank you for your word. Psalm 14, Lord, just seven verses long. We pray for our culture today that is openly biased against Christians and against creation. Lord, we're painfully aware of our own depravity and we're eternally grateful for your grace that we have been justified by the work of Christ on the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that helps us come boldly before you because we know who we are. And Lord, we know what you've done for us. So when we turn, Lord, and as we consider your prayer this morning in John 17, that what you want is for us to be one with you, to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to be used by the Spirit in our life. Lord, help us seek you to know our purpose, what you would have us do in our time that we have here. Lord, I pray you bless us at Calvary this morning, the rest of this day in Jesus' name, amen.